You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning, guys. How are we doing? Before I get into the sermon, uh, we do have a Kids Kingdom. If you need to exit, now would be the time. Just that quick announcement. Um, that being said, as mentioned previously, we are going to do a delve into the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're really excited about that. This is you know, our, our kind of kickoff sermon, if you will. We're going to focus specifically on chapters 1 and 2. Uh, before I do that, however, I think it's only fitting that we pray. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. To be able to be together as a family, God, is truly a blessing. See each other's faces, God, to fellowship face to face. There's nothing really like it. It's like a slice of heaven, God. We thank you that you bring us together as a family. We thank you that we have the opportunity to delve into, into 1 Corinthians and to see all the challenges that come with being a family. <clears throat> Excuse me. We thank you so much, God, for loving us the way that you do. Pray, God, that you open our hearts and minds. Wherever we're at this morning, sometimes we bring a lot of baggage coming in. Uh, allow that emotional stuff, allow the, the sin or whatever that so easily entangles to be able to shed it right now, to have an open heart, open mind towards your word, to draw close to you, God, in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. We love you so much, God. We thank you. Please use your Holy Spirit powerfully during this time. Allow me to be a vessel, God, for you. Love you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, gospel community. Again, we're going to focus on chapters one and two today. A little bit of intro stuff as well. Um, I'm going to play a video, got to preface it. It's about eight minutes, so don't be overwhelmed by that time frame. But it does have some great stuff in terms of just kind of an overview of 1 Corinthians. Um, So I think you guys will like it, and without further ado, I give you Tim Mackey's video. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities. And he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems. And that's why he wrote this letter. It's broken up into five main parts along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics. But there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters one through four, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter, and people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. 
Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences, like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too. Paul says, if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us, and so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering, and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think, first of all, about the purpose of this gathering, to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's spirit should be working through everybody and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. 
It's one, but it has all these different parts. And each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. Some great stuff in there, right? I can't draw that well, so I just figured we'd play the video so you could see it instead. Uh, that, that was the reason, right? <laughs> Some fun facts um, about the city of Corinth. Some were mentioned, but I think it's good to note, right? Uh, it was a major port city in Greco-Asia. So I do have a map. I don't know if you guys know where Corinth is at. Yes? No? Maybe so? A little bit, right? When I first looked at the Bible, I think I was about 7th, 8th grade. I was forced to. It was private school. They made me read it for a grade. Um, it mentioned the church in Philadelphia. And I'm thinking, as a 14, 15-year-old eighth grader, I'm like, wait a minute. There was a church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the time of Jesus? I didn't know. I didn't know. So that's why we do things like maps. Amen? So if you can look real quick, there's two uh, sides. The left side, the orange side, is ancient Greece. So if you want, want to know where Corinth's at, you know, tell your friends at parties. Um, Corinth is that... You see where it says here with the red arrow? It's between the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea. So it's kind of like this sweet spot right here that's great for ports on both sides of the isthmus, yes? Um, and then you can see, you know, modern Greece on the right, 
to the, to the right of Greece, east, if you will, is Turkey. And then if you don't know where any of this is at, it's the Mediterranean Sea. And the, the little boot of Italy would actually be to the west of Greece. So, fun facts, you're welcome. Share it for later. Um, <laughs> extremely diverse city, right? Now, the population at its peak was around 90K, 90,000. That might not seem like a lot, but in ancient terms, a city didn't reach a million, I think it was Alexandria in Egypt, until about, gosh, around 100 BC. So it took that long for a city to get a million people. So 90,000, this is prior to Roman occupation, is a significantly high number. This is a big city. It's on and popping. It's diverse. It's an eclectic group, right? Uh, uh, roughly about the time, I think it was 146 BC is when the Romans took over. They got disheveled, right? They kind of destroyed the city, rebuilt it. Eventually became a provincial capital for Greece. But at that point, the population dwindled. I don't even say dwindled because it's still a high number, a very strategic place that you'd want to preach the gospel, down to about 50K. Uh, primary gods, we may, uh, they might have kind of alluded to a little bit. Poseidon makes sense because it was, you know, right by the ocean, water, correct? And then Aphrodite was their primary goddess. And you can hear that even in Tim Mackey's video, the, the temple worship, the shrine prostitutes, is sex was a part of your worship. Uh, there was guilds. Guilds, it's like a fraternity and a union combined in one. And uh, they would have these, these kind of these big gatherings, get-togethers. Some of that meat that they had at the guilds would also end up being in the marketplace that the video talked about, that Christians were fighting about. Should I eat it? Should I not eat it? But in those guilds, there was also a component of sex as well. So Aphrodite, fertility goddess, it makes total sense. The way it's been described is, uh, from that standpoint, Corinth was like Vegas on steroids. Something to that effect. You saw the map. You're welcome. Any questions about that? The test will be later. No? Okay, good. <laughs> Here. Um, here's an illustration of pink ancient Corinth. So this is prior to Roman occupation. Um, the legend, unfortunately, the key for this map was in, actually in Greek, so I, I can't read it. I'm not there yet. Masters of Divinity coming shortly. But you can see this kind of, this kind of the extensive nature of how productive and busy and vibrant this city was. Whether it's the temples, uh, there's a temple of Apollo that's still standing to this day. Uh, also multiple temples you can see. Colosseum, uh, this little kind of section right there, um, that, was a, that was the marketplace. And so if you notice in between, there's about 33 different setups you could have. Like one shop would be between these columns, and another shop between these columns. This kind of goes all the way down. So extremely vibrant, busy area. Not unlike maybe South Bay. Hmm? By the water. An eclectic group. People are doing well financially. Um, we're, we're in L.A., so there's, you know, you know how Hollywood works, right? There's a lot going on in commerce, culture, and let's say uh, dabbling a little bit of sin as well. Now, this next slide might be controversial. I don't know where you're at on this opinion, but um, if you don't like it, I apologize in advance. You can, you, can, you can rebuke me afterwards if you feel like it. Um, the reason why I shared this slide, I'm not going to leave it up too long because I don't want you guys looking at it forever. Um, we're going to get all our opinions. Ready? What, uh, I know. What's your, what's your opinion on the situation? Ready? Go. We don't want all that. But a lot of times when I looked at Paul's letter to Corinth, I always considered like in that vein. You know, whereas like Paul is like, you know, backhanding the Corinthian church because they're shady and they do all these wrong things. And, you know, their, their example of Christianity is measured on scales and found wanting. Um, so I kind of had this like finger wagging mentality to Corinth. Not realizing that if we're honest, 
we're very much just like Corinth in many ways. So ignore that slide. Wife, I apologize. I know you didn't want me to post it, but I did. I'm sorry. I love you. Argument later. Um, I know. That's why we get with the Marichis, amen? They help us with things like that. So going to point, right? Let's go look at 1 Corinthians 1. We have an issue, and it's an issue that you could find, I would say, really throughout that entire video of all the different uh, challenges that were arising. There's, some, there's an underlying foundation to that. And I, I think 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 in, in uh, verses 10 through 17 does a good job of tackling that. So let's read. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say that you are baptized in my name. As a disclaimer, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. This is an interesting passage. I, I think there's an there's an underlying challenge here, right? How do you get to a point as a Christian? So Paul comes there. He arrives somewhere between 49 and 52 AD. I'm not sure, depending on what scholar you talk to. He was there for 18 months based on Acts chapter 11, 18 verse 11. So he spent a good amount of time with them. He leaves, and then all of a sudden, as these other individuals come and teach, they start following personalities. They start following people. And I would be remiss to think that we are not subject and can possibly fall into that same vein as well. And I don't think anybody likes to admit that because we all want to be our own individual, right? I'm grown. Nobody tells me what to do. I run my own life. But they, I do what I want to do. But they started following. And, and how do you get to a point where following Christ, it, it, it gets superseded by really, I would say, our own opinion? You know what I mean? There's, there's a hubris underlying all this. Yeah. There's an, there's an arrogance. Yep. I want you to know what I value. I want you to know my identity. I want you to know my opinion. When it should be, I want you to know Christ Jesus. That should be the first identity that we have. That should be the identity that we tout yep. to this world. Who are you? What are you about? And it makes sense. They're this diverse, eclectic city. Like, how do you define yourself? What sets you apart? Same here. What sets us apart? What's most important? Is, is it your political leanings? Is it? Is it your sports teams? Is it something sociocultural? Go Chargers. Um, I didn't say that. But, you know, what is it? What is it that you have to emphasize to make to tell this world about, to, to make yourself known. First and foremost, as disciples of Jesus Christ, it should be right. that I follow Christ. Yep. Come on, Rex. Christ is not divided. 
No one else was crucified for you. You were not baptized into some random person's name. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. The underlying thing of this, right? Because, you know, we talked about the hubris and the arrogance. How do we get away from that? I think there's, there's different things that Paul highlights to help us to do so. One, we'll talk about the cross shortly as we get into communion. Another one I like is when he touches in, in 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about this Holy Spirit, right? And this Holy Spirit, biblically speaking, there's an indwelling where God literally wants to be inside of us. Just as he was in the temple previously in, in yesteryear, that we become this body of Christ, that this Holy Spirit, minus Jesus because he's not here physically, would guide us and direct us into all truth. That it would be this partner so that we could figure out what God wants for our lives. Who God is. Who we are. Who we should be. What we should do. Who we should help. Those are a lot of questions that need guidance and direction. Amen? The Holy Spirit is a great way to minimize, let's say, our hubris and our arrogance and our opinion and lead us into a path that builds and creates unity in Christ. Let's read this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are not discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's Isaiah 40 13. But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Amen. When we talk about building uni, what a tremendous undertaking. They were divided because they had a lot of opinions. They were divided because they had a lot of thoughts. They were divided because they wanted to say and think and feel. How do you wrangle all this in if not by supernatural means? Think about that. If a human tries to bring everyone together, usually what it leads to is like conformity. Right? Legalism. It, you, if you try to manufacture it, it it's, it's absolutely impossible. There has to be something new, supernatural in order for us to build the unity that we desire in Christ. The Holy Spirit, what it does, it gives us spiritual realities, spiritual words that are very unique, that only come from God through the Holy Spirit, that only come from the Word of God. I had an interesting uh, interaction Gosh, it was Wednesday. I was getting time with a brother at a coffee bean. If you're a Starbucks fan, I'm sorry. Um, and about an hour into our time, there was a woman who, who she said she was homeless and she was in a, uh, in a wheelchair. Uh, she came up to us and we started having a conversation. Uh, the brother had to leave about an hour in because it was a pretty lengthy conversation. I had a little bit of time before next you know, meeting. And so I spoke with her for about two and a half hours. It was interesting, and it was hard. It was, the whole thing was semi-supernatural, right? Because even looking at her, she looked like she could have been 30. She looked like she could have been 50. 
um, she was, you know, sometimes if you've been in the street for a while, you could kind of get disheveled, right, and face and hands and things. She didn't have any of that. And, and she started talking. And amidst, if you wanted to, you could have discounted her words because of some things she shared that might have been like a cyclical nature to it. She might repeat some of the things that she said. But in the midst of all that, there was these deep spiritual truths. She was talking about as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 17, without using the scripture. She was talking about it pretty extensively. She was talking about how we don't want to hide our, 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 our light. We don't want to, you know, put a bowl over it, as the scripture talks about. But we want to let it shine for everyone to see. She, she mentioned about how we can be out of sight and out of mind with, with the plight of those that are less fortunate, that are going through some serious issues. She was using spiritual words. She was defining spiritual realities. For us in a fellowship, this is one of the things that should describe us. It should be a part of who we are. Our conversations, right? We leave church. We go to lunch. What do we talk about? When our homes, by ourselves, what's the discussion? With our spouses and our friends and our family, what do we discuss? Ideally, if we are being led by the Holy Spirit, if we are allowing God's word to richly dwell in us, we will start sharing spiritual realities and spiritual truths, and it's not awkward. It's not religious. It's not weird. You know, sometimes I, I, I've been in churches long enough where it, I can see it swing, right, the pendulum. Sometimes it gets to a place where people feel like they have to talk about the sermon right after it's over, and then when they go to lunch, they'd have to talk about the sermon because they didn't want to feel like they weren't righteous. And then I've been in places where no one says anything. <laughs> they don't talk about it. And if you do, it almost feels like it's weird. Like, oh, you're going to share about that right now? Are you trying to be super righteous? You know what I mean? But there's a sweet spot where the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we just share about what we care about. And we can vacillate between sports and entertainment and fashion and all these different topics. And then go right into the deepest spiritual truths that you've ever shared in your entire life. There should be that type of comfort within the body of Christ to go from superficial to ultra deep in 0.5 seconds because the Holy Spirit dwells richly in us. Amen. Some thoughts before we get into communion. Question. How can my example better create unity within the body of Christ? You know, we, we live in an interesting age, right, where a lot of things are online. But I got to say this. I have to say this. This is my plug. If you have disciples of Jesus Christ within a five-mile radius that are not far from you, we have to make efforts to be around each other. Amen? I think it's too easy nowadays to, to just push it aside and then church becomes TV. And church becomes something on our phone. And granted, there's extenuating circumstances. There's viable reasons why that occurs. But if you don't have one, if it's just a matter of convenience, I want to lovingly challenge you. Be around the body. Make the effort. Fight for the fellowship. Not because of attendance. Not because someone's going to ask you if you went to church. Because the spirit desires to be around the spirit. Amen? But think for your example. That's one plug I was considering, but whatever comes to your mind, consider for yourself. Question number two. What is one spirit-led truth that God wants me to embrace today? If there is one thing 
the Holy Spirit was going to tell you this morning, what would it be? What is that one thing that the, the, the Spirit of God wants to lead you to, his spiritual truth and his spiritualities this morning? As we look into communion, Paul mentions this part first. So he goes from the, the discourse of the I follow Paul and I follow Paulus and I follow, you know, everyone's kind of all disjointed. The first thing he mentions to bring us back to unity, Holy Spirit was second. The first part is the cross. And so let's read in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross, and that message, and I had a discussion with Devin Ketch earlier, which was great, the message that Greek is logos. And so that logos is like the reason of the cross, the was the understanding of the cross, I believe. The Jesus of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. They wanted a sign that, you know, that signified their specialness before God. Greeks looked for wisdom. The, the thought of, of Jesus coming down and being in a physical form, it just didn't make sense. It defied their rationale. But we preach Christ crucified. Amen. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To many today, the cross seems foolishness. It doesn't make sense. God's not real. Don't talk about my sin. Don't try to control me. The Bible says that and the other. But God did it intentionally. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, all that we're talking about is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's the kicker. For the foolishness of God, his intentional foolishness, he knew darn well that people were going to say all these things about him in the gospel. Did it on purpose. He said, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. In the weakness of God, a man dying on a cross, not victorious, lap, general, uh, you know, conquering realms and achieving victory, but the weakness of Christ of a man being crucified for doing absolutely nothing wrong is stronger than human strength. As we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, it's going to be a fun delve. You know, we're going to go about two chapters per week. We'll have some different speakers come out. Uh, from our Long Beach church. So it's, it's, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to hear some different opinions and different perspectives. As we go through, let us look and kind of remember these first two chapters. Because as you can see in, in 1 Corinthians 1, their, their desire to puff themselves up, their desire to share their opinion, that permeates through the rest of the book. And it really is the underpinnings of many of the challenges you find. But the beauty of the gospel as much as we like to go on ways and have our own opinions and have our own thoughts and try to express ourselves in different ways, the beauty of the gospel is that we can all go to the foot of the cross. We can all go to a place and find grace and find forgiveness and find unity and find a connection that through the Holy Spirit, we could have the mind of Christ and genuinely care about the things of God. What did Jesus care about? He cared about helping people to know his father. He cared about the poor. 
He cared about shepherding the flock and helping people mature in Christ. He cared about his own personal walk with God. Through the cross, through the Holy Spirit, we can have the motivation and all the inspiration that we need to tackle the different challenges that you'll find in a church. Amen? Let us pray for communion. Father God, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for giving us a common ground through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for giving us your Holy Spirit, for guiding us, directing us as he's with you and not in a physical form here on earth. Help us, God, this morning to, to acknowledge what you've done for us, not just conceptually, but deep in our hearts, that it gives us motivation, God, that it brings us to a place of true north, allowing us to see you clearly, to see ourselves clearly, to see this word clearly, that there be no divisions among us, God, but a, a true unity from your son and through your spirit. We love you, God, and praise in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.